Warning, the truly unusual podcast you're about to hear contains many mentions of graphic violence, burps, farts, and doo-doo nonsense. It is not intended for the faint of heart, nor the young and impressionable. Welcome to another episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast, hosted by me, your movie monster boy, Aaron, and my cravenly co-host, Derek. What up, pervs? Uh, who has been spotted on the west side of the big island with a meat cleaver in one hand and his genitals in the other, <laughs> in yep. which we dissect the fears, phobias, and social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres. As well as discuss just how scary they are for newbies and hard junkies like. Joining us on this extra special episode, not only do we have my lovely wife, Heather. Hello. But we Hi, Heather. also have the sons of Sheetar themselves, <laughs> Tyler McCarty and Nate Boyd of the Anamorphing Time and the Bruce Campbell podcast. What's up, guys? Hey, how are you? Yeah, hail Sheetar. Yeah, <laughs> hail Sheetar. <laughs> I, I like y'all. I am armed with my podcast mic in one hand and my genitals in the other, and I am ready to <laughs> podcast. Hell yeah. I have a brain in a jar. It's my cat's brain, and it's still meowing and talking to me and telling me to kill. <laughs> I'm, I'm a part of neuterobics. I'm not going to make it to this. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, my tits are too big for neuterobics. I would rather die. <laughs> well, you're <in> luck. <laughs> I would rather die. Hey, that's a good segue because Heather, uh, you were the one who kind of set this whole episode up. Yeah. So as you guys who listen to the podcast know, Aaron and I recently moved to the D.C. area. Oh, you're D.C. freaks. Yeah. Gross. Yeah. <laughs> we're oh, I, right I in hear about all those on CNN, how you're all freaks. <laughs> <laughs> thinking about that the other day with the clown show that has been the speaker of the house nomination process aaron and i sort of looked at each other the other day and we're like oh that's happening like yeah, fuck, down the street that's down the street <laughs> these asshats yeah so i got to virginia before aaron did and in my lonely time while i was up here by myself i listened to a lot of podcasts pretty much listening to animorphing time basically every day for a few months while, oh my god um, i'm so sorry yeah don't do that no it was wonderful it was wonderful <laughs> i was a big animorphs head from when i was a kid love the podcast just the idea that a leftist animorphs podcast exists just kind of broke my brain in the best way that's yeah so as a wife of a podcaster i feel like i have done my best to be supportive only make a few jokes about how white men they do be podcasting you know <laughs> let him have his time to record etc i haven't made that many demands i think the only demand i have made is the ginger snaps episode which i was on so you know i feel like it was time for me to play my podcast wife card and basically beg my husband to let me pitch a crossover to nate and tyler as an excuse to hang out with them and for us all to record together so, yeah, this is how this ended up happening. Um, the Animorphing Time podcast is now completed, but it's fantastic. If you like Animorphs, must listen. If you don't like Animorphs, they go through the plot of everything and they'll convert you to loving Animorphs. So highly, I highly recommend. I haven't finished all of Animorphs. I just finished the David saga. Is that what it's called? Oh, yeah, the trilogy. With uh, Mr. Mm -hmm. Cool Guy himself, David. <laughs> That's what they call him. <laughs> That's sociopath. The yeah, unsung yeah. hero of Animorphs, the forgotten Animorph, if you will. The Uncle Animorph. 
Yeah. <laughs> he is the character X-Man from the 90s. That is exactly that character. Adam X the Extreme, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Adam <laughs> X the Extreme, that one. But yeah, I've enjoyed just listening to you guys, even out of context of like, I don't know what the book y'all are talking about. Y'all are talking about like weird little creatures that hold all men in slavery and the Animorphs are now dealing with these people and their society. And I just don't know what the fuck is going on. But I enjoy listening to y'all talk about wanting to like burn down all societal institutions because that's how I feel most of the time. Yeah. You're right there, man. You are in DC. Yeah. You are you right there. Revolution. Hell yeah. I mean, like, it's just young adult slither, right? Like yeah. that's the way I describe Animorphs is just mm-hmm. like what if Slither was like fifty three books long right. for teenagers, <laughs> basically. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, and the thing I was great as they were marketed. So I read Animorphs as early as like second or third grade. I remember my dad reading me chapters of Animorphs when he would put me to bed. Like that's how early I was reading them. And in retrospect, it's fucking insane that they marketed those books yeah. to kids as young as us. And <laughs> yeah. here's the kicker: I went to a Catholic elementary school and middle school and high school and all our scholastic book fairs were just filled with animorphs and goosebumps and fear street and like granted goosebumps was a little more kid friendly but fear street certainly wasn't that yeah. was his more teenager young adult line it was still all the shit they were telling you was of the devil and bad mm-hmm. and is gonna send you to hell yeah know? well i had a robocop's toy too growing yeah. up <laughs> and like you know hey as you know mate you should not be watching robocop although i did yeah, yeah. and i i had a toxic yes. avenger action figure it's yeah like, they didn't care in the 80s it's like hey you know these, these things we kids mm-hmm. like it yeah yeah i i don't think any adults actually knew what were in animorphs like very few you know teachers or librarians that would give you these books they, had they really heard. didn't because i have a co-worker who her son grew up reading animorphs and she happened to see an animorph sticker i had in my water bottle and she's like what's that and i had to shamefully explain that i have a podcast and <laughs> it was about. there's nothing more shameful than explaining you podcast and then she's like oh my son read those animorphs book what's your podcast called and i begrudgingly told her and so she started listening with her son this is like a 60 year old woman listening to my oh podcast my about jerking <laughs> off and <laughs> and she's like you know i never would have let my kid read any of this i can't believe that was in there i was like i know you're a bad mother sorry <laughs> well again the thing that blows my mind is my dad was reading some of it and That's he still was like animorphs is a good series keep reading <laughs> son it's like all right yeah i <laughs> totally skipped this as a kid so i'm just as an adult discovering the series i had no clue what it was until heather brought it back up and was like god i'm digging back into this shit again from when i was a kid i thought growing up everyone was just a different caper with some kid that could turn into an animal and like we're gonna learn about the animal world and it's a different kid every time i didn't realize that there was like this whole shit about an alien invasion and this gorilla revolution led by these kids and genocide and all this bullshit and like maybe if you find yourself ugly you might want to kill yourself and what would that feel like (laughs) like (laughs) (laughs) so yeah it's been wild the last couple of years catching up on some of those books with her the specific animorph book that always sat in my mind for so long i think it might have been one of the last ones i read um before i just kind of moved on from that i thought like maybe pokemon came out and overtook it or whatever but i read book 26 the attack (laughs) and it's the one where jake is turning into the tiger and it's lunging Mm -hmm. but the inside cover is what really fucking rules because it's like in this lego land (laughs) kind of like mid 90s like cd wear like graphics lego land it looks like 
reboot. And it's just him lunging at this lava person in the corner and all these other animals and the Andalite just cheering, going like, fuck yeah, this rules. The single best piece of Animorphs art I think that exists is that. <laughs> yep, timeless. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good, yeah. yeah. But I, I just remember like this one line from that book that has stayed with me since a kid and like it's an inside joke to my own consciousness tell the big red eye that jake said hi before he kills one of the howlers yeah i looked that up like in preparation for you guys coming on our show and us and vice versa and then i I just opened up the floodgate all my memories of specifically this book i remember that the bad guy is basically the eye of sauron Mm -hmm. but intergalactic eye of sauron and it might be satan Question mark? Never really yep. explained. An argument could be made. <laughs> Everything could be Satan. Right? Yeah. Think about it. Satan of the galaxy. Yeah, Satan of the galaxy. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, so I just, uh, I'm going to have to go back and go through y'all's backlog of that and just open my brain of all those old childhood memories. I, I mean, I remember on one of, the, I think it was one of the Animorphs oversized special books that they had where they were time traveling and like <laughs> yep. George Washington gets killed because they fucked with the past. And yeah. then, oh yeah. <laughs> they even have like, Hitler later. Yeah. So they, they kind of like, yeah, you know, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> that was the first time I remember in that book specifically, because I was reading that when I was like in fourth or fifth grade. I was like, wait, I think this is concepts that are beyond me because they were like debating on like, do we kill Hitler and alter our timeline? But if we do that, could it be somehow worse? They're having all these philosophical debates about time travel. And I'm like, as a middle schooler, like, what the fuck? <laughs> That's Animorphs in a nutshell is they take these fun sci-fi tropes and then they really grind into your heart is this ethical is what you're doing ethical is is this okay no well it's going to happen anyway and here's how you have to react to it or die and i love that yeah and the other thing about animorphs that's so cool is that it does not pull punches any of the Mm -mm. stuff it doesn't look down to the children that are reading it it takes the themes and the stories very seriously you know obviously there's some very silly plot elements but when it comes to ethical questions when it comes to trauma when it comes to you know the heaviness of what they're dealing with animorphs takes that very seriously and it is so realistic in how it handles it it doesn't treat it like a cartoon it really respects the intelligence of the kids that are reading it and treats them like they can deal with these heavy topics and i really appreciated that when i was a kid and i appreciate it now as an adult because those books still hold up to me like they're still fun to read they're still impactful. The other thing that was funny to me, too, because I've read a couple excerpts from random books, two more recently. They're all supposed to be 12 to 14, 15 years old, around that age group, I guess. But they're all talking like they're doctorate philosophical masters about the concept of human nature and what yeah. it means. Yeah. Look, I smoked weed and got into philosophical debates with people when I was in high school and didn't know what I was talking about. Yeah, but these don't sound bullshit, though, like, either. Like, that's the thing. <laughs> that's what I was about to say. I, I won't put it past some smart kids to like actually have their shit together and sound like that when they're teenagers yeah this is the right audience for it it's a crossover between like alex mack and come and see (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah, for sure there, you kind of see that. Yeah, all the characters have those fifty-yard stares, like they've been in war <laughs> yeah. for yeah. nine years. By the time the series <laughs> is done, they really yeah. do. And the thing that I love about Animorphs now, especially as an adult, is that since it's a product of the '90s, there was a risk that there would be some heavily problematic stuff with revisiting it and luckily i can say it's pretty kind to gay representation Mm -hmm. and it's also only casually racist not overtly racist which is nice from the 90s product (laughs) like there's no person of color named shacklebolt in it or anything like that yeah 
Yeah. Yeah. The most I've seen so far just getting into these books for the first time has been just stuff like, hey, Cassie, can I touch your hair? It's really pretty. You know, it's it's not been like anything more overt than that, really. There's a couple examples, mostly Middle Eastern stuff without trying to spoil too much, mm-hmm. but it could be worse. That's all I'm saying. Could be worse. Yeah. And the fun thing about before we move on and talk about the movie, let me give a little bit more props to Animorphing Time and plug that a little bit more. No, stop. Don't. (laughs) (laughs) Part of what's been so fun about that is these books came out in the 90s. I read them as a kid. There were some very rudimentary Animorphs websites, but there was no community for it. And so as an adult, being able to talk to other people who are like me as a kid that also liked these books and have all these formative memories about reading them and whose personality and morals to some extent have also been informed by reading these books as a kid. Being able to find those people as an adult when I had no way to connect with them as a kid has been really cool. And so I think that's why so many Animorphs fans are so excited about online communities and about the podcast and just about talking Animorphs to other people because we didn't get to do it when we were a kid. There's been a revival of it too, right? Mm -hmm. Like in the last chunk of years, it seems like they've really, Animorphs has come full circle into the pop culture viewpoint again. But like you said, we're now aged. So now like we can understand most of the themes that were going on in this and appreciate some of the weird quirks of the series. Yeah. They're uh, doing graphic novels Mm -hmm. now. The first three are out. They have plans, I think, up to 10 for now. And if they continue to do well, I'm sure they'll keep going. But the graphic novels so far have been have been really good. The guy who writes those has been on uh, Nate and Tyler's show a couple times. He seems oh, hell like yeah. a really cool guy. The graphic novels are good. Uh, humble brag, he drew Nate and I in the newest graphic novel. Yeah. Oh, fuck yeah. Awesome. Hell yeah. That's great. <laughs> Y'all are second guests then to get drawn into a comic by uh, someone who's a fan of their podcast. Shelby Scott of uh, Scary to Sleep was in a Batman comic. Uh, a That's a bigger get. Eh, well, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I will second this artwork, Derek. I'm looking at it now. I haven't gotten this far. Does it fucking rule? This is going to be my new phone wallpaper. Just again for listeners, this is that fucking Windows 90 whatever screensaver with the colored tubes. But if the colored tubes were like a fucking dolly nightmare and that was like the landscape as far as the eye could see and there is a fucking gladiator platform where a tiger is fighting a shadow man made of lava with wolverine fog. and then there is a gorilla a grizzly bear a wolf and a like blue man centaur with eye stalks and a scorpion tail called an andalite yeah. and they are all fucking fist pumping and screaming and then there's also like a hawk that's doing the same somehow even though he doesn't have hands tobias who i was my favorite character shout out david mattingly it's great oh yeah he rules but you can buy a print of those from david mattingly is the guy who did all those inside covers by the way yeah you can just shop. email him and he'll send them yeah i have told aaron hint hint that i need a uh, print of the axe turning into the raccoon cover <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> i need to look that one up now for <laughs> listeners also it looks a lot like what you're seeing now with AI art, but without the shitty like stealing from artists aspect of it. And they don't all have nine fingers and... Well, I'd say look at the blue guy again. Yeah, X has more than five (laughs) fingers. Yeah, Yeah, true. (laughs) Eight. True. David Mattingly was also on... Yeah, yeah. he's a really really interesting episode. Fuck yeah. Learned a lot about map painting. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
but yeah, sorry, I, I totally just derailed our show, but I'm glad we got into these discussions. Oh, also, since this is a horror podcast, yeah, there's a shit ton of body horror and violence in these books, too. So, <laughs> like, you so check all that box off. So, anyway, Do you want to read about 14 year olds experiencing ego death? Animorphs is a series for you. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> But that's a good segue into y'all's other show that just started, which is the Bruce Campbell podcast, which that is something I do know a lot about and did spend my entire childhood <laughs> digging into. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Nate and I, when we did the Animorphs podcast, Nate had no context for Animorphs. It was something we worked on just for fun together. Like, hey, we thought this would be an interesting experiment. And then people started to listen to it. And so when we, we knew Animorphs was ending, so the next podcast, we thought, well, what's something we're both really passionate about? Movies. Well, that's too broad what's something more focused more specific oh we both fucking love bruce campbell completely why don't we yes. watch and read and play every single thing he's ever done because we've already done most of it already why don't we go back to it it's a natural progression from the time you ran up to him at the McMenamins in <laughs> roseburg oregon <laughs> he look he ran up to me first and then i ran it's fine i don't no, want you, you didn't run to each other it wasn't a romantic moment no <laughs> you i were like oh okay look i was like 15 i'm 37 now and i saw him and i walked up to him i was like oh my god you're bruce campbell he's like yeah i'm bruce campbell and it's like uh when's briscoe coming on dvd and he's like i don't know <laughs> and i'm like okay thank you <laughs> i went and had my lunch and then he came over and said a couple nice things to me and left that's it that, that's all celebrity interactions i think for everybody i still love him yeah but, unless you're working with that person that is typically what it's like from a fan standpoint it's always just awkwardly walks up to person hey uh, i liked you in whatever <laughs> Uh, can you sign this for me yeah, sure get out of here you know so <laughs> I, I will say that's solid of him to come yeah. back up to you though and then say some because not many celebrities would have done no, that he this fucker sorry nice man came up to my table he's holding a <laughs> napkin and i'm like oh god oh god why is bruce campbell got a napkin and bruce campbell just goes hey i was wondering if you could give me your autograph and I scribbled my name on a napkin to him and then just started shaking. And he's like, hey, thanks very much, and walked away. And I'm like, oh, my God. That's a way better story. That is such a good yeah. story. He was, he was That's cool. Sweet yeah. guy. And the thing that was wild was that he remembered it six months later when I met him at a book signing. Oh, hell yeah. I met Jenny Lewis of Rilo Kiley and other fame. Um, <laughs> of Jenny Lewis. Yeah. <laughs> when I was in, gosh, I was like a freshman in college and i literally couldn't speak i just was kind of <laughs> like ah, i love you like it, it was bad so i totally relate to the just freezing in adoration i have also had that experience she was also extremely nice and was eating cherry twizzlers it was very cute yes good taste mm -hmm. so yeah we uh are gonna be doing a full crossover with you guys and uh, i don't know what the timing will look like for all this but i did notice that y'all are not necessarily going chronologically uh with bruce's filmography so people can probably figure this out, but Bruce does have a good chunk of horror stuff. So we will be on one of those with you guys. Let's just say as a hint, the movie we're talking about tonight was released on the Vestron Blu-ray line, as well as the one that uh, we are discussing with you guys that Bruce mm -hmm. was in. So anywho, yeah, before we jump into the movie... Let's do a quick round of any kind of other horror-related recommendations that we might have for listeners, whether it's other horror movies, books, video games, comics, just anything like that that we've checked out lately that you might want to throw out and recommend. So, Nate, yeah, Tyler, what have you guys got? There are two things I'm excited about. One, I'm not going to talk much about, but just kind of doing a plug for the Haunted PS1, if you're aware of that. Yes. Yeah, okay, you're on. Yes. You're oh, yeah. PS1, yeah. 
it's it's this compilation of little poly PS1 style graphics of just horror games, and I I really dig it. I didn't think in a million years we'd ever have anybody on this podcast bring it yeah, up. So thank you for great. bringing that up. Aaron, to give you an idea of what this is, imagine like, you know how they do film festivals where there's like a film competition where like, oh, you're given 48 hours to make a 20 minute short. Sure. Yeah, and yeah. like, we're going to show a compilation of these 20 minute shorts. Translate that to indie game developers making mini like horror games. And then they put them all on like, and back in the day, PlayStation magazine would give demo discs out that had six or seven PlayStation games that were coming out and you could play like 20 minutes of each i think i remember that they were like always glued to the front of some gaming magazine yeah. at the bookstore and you just got the free cd with it yeah and that's the idea of these collections they put out a couple of them now the way i know about them is i constantly check bloody disgusting for horror news specifically video game horror news and they always cover whenever one of these collections drops but yeah they're interesting you can pick them up and uh they're all pc um none of them are console as far as i know like you could have a dog shit computer and play most of these games so then if it's for pc only then why is it called ps1 it's the graphic style. okay yeah right graphics so. the jill valentine square hands kind yeah. Of thing. yeah 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 very blocky <laughs> yeah and again like it's kind of a an homage to the ps1 like demo discs that are just not a thing anymore gotcha oh, i played tony hawk pro skater from the pizza hut demo i, I played that demo so many times <laughs> so many times i was so poor <laughs> <laughs> go check it out so that's the short plug the long plug is for the lair of the white worm. There is a legend of an ancient evil. Something's been found in Stone Rig Cavern. A legend that no one would ever believe. Legend has it that Stone Rig Cavern was the lair of the Dampton Worm. Unless, of course, it came right up and bit him. One, two, three, four! I hear you're having trouble with a snake. Diana was a pain snake god. I'm snake watching. As if they were just swallowed up. John Dampton went a fishing once, a fishing in the weir. He caught a fish upon his hook. He thought, look mighty queer. Now what the kind of fish it was, John Dampton couldn't tell. But he didn't like the look of it, so he threw it down a well. Ha! We must take the word worm too literally. It's an adaptation of the Anglo-Saxon virum, meaning dragon or snake. Ah, the experience of a lifetime. Now the worm got fat and growed, and growed an awful size. With great big teeth and a great big mouth and great big goggle eyes. So John set out and caught the beast and cut it into halves. And that soon stopped it, eating babes and sheep and lads and cats. From the director of Altered States and creator of Dracula, a new movie of venom and vengeance. Ken Russell's The Lair of the White Worm. I'm famished. We stop on the way for a bite. Uh, watch out for your ass. Uh, I watched that oh, yeah. over the, the Christmas break. Uh, it was one of the best decisions of my life. It's the most British horror movie I've ever seen. <laughs> that's, that's what's horrific about it is all the British <laughs> stuff. Yeah, yeah. The food there, they, it's gross. <laughs> it's gross. It means on everything. <laughs> yeah, <no>. Disgusting. <laughs> well, and you, you also get like a young Hugh Grant doing like this weird pervy movie. Who would have thought Hugh Grant? Who would have thought I, that I, Hugh I, Grant would be a pervert? Dude, sink so low. <laughs> Not me. Uh, <laughs> but it, it's, yeah, it's this wild, surreal movie about a collection of teenagers having to kill a, a cultist dragon thing 
a white oh, worm. Yeah, yes. Not worm like, you know, the, the, the earthworm, but like a worm. Yeah, the, the Elden Ring type of worm. Yeah, yeah. No arms kind. It's weird, man. It's just weird. It is super weird, but they, it's like haunting and really well done. They, they have dream sequences that I really get into, which is, yes. like, it, you know, like they go into a painting at one point. I'm like, mm-hmm. hell yes, painting. Let's go into that painting. <laughs> Mario 64, uh, <laughs> yeah. Kind of. Like, <laughs> it's like Mary Poppins, though, you know, where it's like animated back background and then it's Hugh Grant's just kind of walking yeah. around in it but it's also just very perverted yeah which you know I'm not gonna say I'm like well yeah that. the British are natural perverts like it's all in their like genetic makeup I don't understand it I'm not a racist but <laughs> <laughs> good cover <laughs> does it involve Hugh Grant showing his white weirum he does not he does I not I think you see his butt uh no one hangs dog. No, there's there's no bad. dog. He just gets wrapped up by a snake. It's pretty good. Yeah. There's a whole sequence. Are there themes of penetration? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> penetration is a huge part of that movie. Very much. Yeah. Okay. Just, yeah. just checking. I figured as much. I will absolutely second that one. That's on our list of stuff to get to eventually. Yeah. No, it's, I, I saw it on our list uh, the other day, actually, because I was updating our yeah, list. I fucking love Ken Russell. Very much a lot of his weird sense of humor flows into all of his stuff but especially into that one it's very campy and the nightmare hallucination sequences Mm -hmm. like you say are fucking Mm -hmm. great that's like one of the things i love in all of his movies altered states is like full of that kind of nonsense especially because that movie is all about tripping on every fucking type of weird drug that you can possibly find chasing that high doing sensory deprivation tanks and that kind of thing and so it's just william hurt literally hurtling backwards through the collective consciousness of humanity and witnessing like the birth of Christ and the dawn of Satan and just like all this insane religious imagery but it's all done in that weird kaleidoscopic late 80s music video kind of yep. style yeah. like fuck yes we're gonna do that movie too eventually right yeah, just imagine that with Hugh Grant in British <laughs> upper class and it's, it's the same movie yes <laughs> giant vampire fangs as well Mm -hmm. so yeah i definitely second that one cool heather what have you got so i finished a book over the holiday break that i really enjoyed called house of hunger by alexis henderson it is a gothic fiction vampire adjacent story it's not groundbreaking in any way so it's definitely like a tropes and themes you'll be comfortable with if you're a horror fan but it's really well done it's very compelling if you're looking for another toxic lesbian queer woman led gothic horror it's it's great i really enjoyed it so it sounds like maybe the gender bent version of interview the vampire yeah definitely there's some of that there's a lot of class issues at play as well so if you want to watch rich people get murdered that's gonna happen some uh yeah when you brought up uh, Interview with the Vampire, it took me back to that when Norm McDonough was still on SNL, where he did that review of the movie Interview with the Vampire came out. He did a review on, on SNL. He said, my review of Interview with the Vampire, not enough gay. <laughs> <laughs> that's just like what I thought. And of. Norm McDonald's bad opinions now aside, <laughs> it's not wrong, at least then. Yeah. That movie could definitely yeah. use a little more. Just push it a little bit further. Yeah. Although I hear the new TV show ratchets yeah. that up. Yeah, I've heard the new TV show is very much. It is yeah. so gay. Complimentary wise, not like middle school gay. Uh, that's the only <laughs> way. I, if I mean gay, I mean it complimentary wise. The more gay, the better. Well, just the language in Blood Diner, the nickname that the uncle 
<laughs> yeah. True. We'll get to that. <laughs> Things that didn't age well. I think if me or Tyler is saying it, we mean that yeah. as a compliment. We'll put it that way. One thing I should also mention about House of Hunger is that it's a woman of color author and the lead is a woman of color as well. So if you're looking for more representation, either in your main characters or the authors that you read, that book could give it to you. Heather, I looked it up and it was saying it's her uh, sophomore novel. Did yes. you read her first novel as well? I have not, but I want to after reading this and liking it. Okay. I'm kind of curious about this now myself. Now I'm looking at it. Yeah, I, I plan to read the first book, but have not yet. Cool. Derek, what have you got? Since we have the Animorphs guys on here, another author who I brought up earlier that I read a shit ton of along with Animorphs books were Goosebumps and R.L. Stein. R.L. Stein is still around and kicking. He's still writing shit. Um, I think he just a couple of years ago, he restarted the Fear Street series and everything. But more recently, he dipped into comic writing. Huh. I'm going to recommend a mini series. It's only four issues long. The fourth issue just came out. Uh, there's been multiple printings, so you should be able to get all four issues at your local comic shop pretty easily. It's from Boom Studios. It is called Stuff of Nightmares. It is basically R.L. Stein's take on the old school, like, EC Comics horror, where it's kind of almost like hammer horror mixed with a shit ton of gore and violence. Okay. The story is, honestly, it's reanimator mixed with, they're not quite zombies, but they're kind of like ghouls that just, like, rip people apart. Um, it's a very reanimator-esque story. I appreciate R.L. Stein's just very direct way of writing. Like, there's not many themes beyond, like, defeating death it's very straightforward horror just blood guts it it just feels like he is writing for the children he used to write goosebumps for our generation now grown up yeah i don't know it's just it's an easy read it's very no frills there's a bit of a tales from the crypt kind of energy to it because each issue begins and ends with like this crypt keeper like being who like owns a museum of all these horrible artifacts like oh here's this guillotine that beheaded people during the french revolution and like sure. he always does like this so like the coolest attic of weird bullshit yeah yeah and it, you know he does like the whole jokey like freddy chucky crypt keeper kind of thing so each episode is a little has that also that goofy energy to it um that's kind of playful but i don't know I, I had fun with it there's nothing new here it's very like horror cliched the whole way through it basically is reanimator so yeah i don't really know what else there's to say about art solid if gore makes you queasy uh People do get ripped to fucking shreds, so just be ready for that. But yeah, Stuff of Nightmares by R.L. Stein. Yes, childhood writer R.L. Stein <laughs> that from one. Boom Studios. Fourth issue just came out. I'm sure the trade is on the way. My quick plug would probably be, and I'll make it podcast-related, Moontrap, starring Walter Koenig and Bruce Campbell. Okay. The crew of the space shuttle Camelot has just brought back a little present from the moon. He's 14,000 years old. And now, it is free again. To seek. There's something in the corridor. To hunt. Something huge. Keep it together. Keep it together. To kill. Out of the darkness. The hell have we got here, Jason? It called him. A base. And we're being invited in. To set it free. space on the outer limits one man from our time one woman from another that's what we are spare parts together 
They must face the ultimate challenge. Moontrap. The wait is over. Starring Star Trek's Walter Koenig and Evil Dead's Bruce Campbell. Uh, it's in, from that B-movie phase of Bruce Campbell before he's capital B Bruce, capital C Campbell, where it's like he's just a working actor. And a movie that stars Walter Koenig, man, you could not hang a movie on someone with so little charisma. It's insane. Yeah. It's free on <laughs> Especially during that period of his career. Yeah. yeah. Like the way I describe Moontrap. And it's be a little graphic. It's like 55-year-old Walter Koenig desperately trying to prove that he can still get laid. It's just <laughs> an insane, it's an insane movie. It's, it's a big flop sweat of a movie, at least for Walter Koenig. <laughs> yeah, like he's awful in it, but like everything surrounding him is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Like the art design, the sound design, the horror design, the monster design, all made by masters working really hard to make an incredible B-movie sci-fi movie. It's all on YouTube. It's fun, stupid. If you can tolerate some really bad acting, go for it. So this is something Aaron and I were talking about just generally with movies this year. Movies have gotten so damn long. Everything this year was too long. <laughs> Which is so good about Blood Diner because Blood Diner is like, we're going to get perfect in, length. Do yeah. all this crazy minutes, shit, and then we're going to get out. Yeah, yeah. The perfect length. Any movie that floats between that 80 to 100 minute mark, especially horror, love it. Yeah, I've said it before, and I can't remember where I first heard this, but any movie, for the first 90 minutes, you got me. You got me for free. Anything past 90 minutes, like, you got to fucking earn that time. So, yeah, when you come with, like, a two-hour and 15-minute-long movie, and again, you could trim 45 minutes of just people running around, just cool, trim it, cut it down, make it lean and mean. Yeah, you hear that, James Cameron? Just get it effective. Somehow Blood Diner manages to be both maximalist and short at the same time, which is a feat. Yeah. Just put it all in the minutes you got. Love that. Yeah. So that's a good segue. Let's go ahead and get into the movie that we're discussing this episode, which is fucking Blood Diner from 1987, directed by Jackie Kong. Hell yeah. Ah, hello, fellow food lovers. I'm Phil Mignon, world famous gourmet. In my travels, I've sampled some of the most exquisite foods the world has to offer. And that's why they've asked me to tell you all about a charming new eatery located right downtown. As um, you can see, the atmosphere is lovely. But, of course, the... The finest attribute of this quaint cafe is the marvelous cuisine. I'd give my right arm for that secret recipe. Ah! Uh, Yes, the chef puts a bit of himself into every succulent dish. Oh, and he's always pleased to serve you to your friends. Uh, shouldn't that be serve you and your friends? Uh, No. Uh, Your gracious hostess will direct you to your table. Where you will dine as if there's no tomorrow. So, breeze on down and don't let anything stand in your way. Oh, uh, this Epicurean haven is called Blood Diner. So, 
This is Phil Mignon. Ah, saying, bon appetit. Oh, mommy. The Blood Diner. First they greet you, then they eat you. No one under 17 admitted. So, Nate and Tyler, <laughs> this was your pick. Yep. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about why you chose this movie? Why did you want to talk about Blood Diner? Oh, boy. Nate, go ahead. You know, Blood Diner is a special movie. <laughs> it's, it's one of those things where, like, I, I saw it, like, mid-college. Wasn't exposed to a lot of movies at the time. You know, Blood Diner itself doesn't sell itself as a horror comedy immediately. You don't know exactly what you're getting into until you start watching it, right? And then mm-hmm. as soon as I saw that introduction scroll of, you know, hey, warning, you know, there are cannibals in this movie. You're going to have a heart attack and die if you continue watching. If you're sensitive, you know, don't do this. It was edgy at the time that I just really wanted to watch something edgy. And so it got me. I love it. It's hard to talk about for me almost because it just it hits the right nerves. Mm-hmm. Hell yeah. Tyler, why, why, why do you... What do you love about that? I pitched this movie because, one, I went through a list of what y'all had covered, and you'd already covered a bunch of our faves. And uh, <laughs> don't, don't make it sound like it's the, the no, second choice. It's not the second choice. Blood Diner is one that I think warrants critical evaluation in ways that other horror movies do not, because it is at once exactly what it is on a surface level and not at all what it is on a surface level. Like, there's some deep, really technical, solid filmmaking shit in there, as well as thematic shit in there that warrants thinking about i don't know this movie has stayed with me since i watched it for the same reason you said nate that it's edgy that it's wild that it's just fucking out there for a horror movie if you call it a horror movie i mean it's a horror movie yeah (laughs) i'm leaning more now towards that it's a screwball comedy with horror elements (laughs) it's not one that i ever stop thinking about in terms of that era of 80s horror it's not a perfect movie but it's a masterpiece in its own way is what I would argue. You know, Aaron and I say all the time that we would rather watch something that is maybe messy, maybe rough around the edges, maybe not perfect, but interesting, rather than a movie that's perfectly well done, but everything about it is boring. You yeah, know? absolutely. Blood Diner totally nails that. Like, it is extremely silly and, like, bonkers, but it's throwing everything at the wall, and every scene has something interesting visually going on, and it's extremely silly, but it's interesting. Like, there's so much to it. Yeah. I remember when we were watching it the other night, you had never seen it. As soon as the, like, night security guard at the cemetery gets whacked on the head with the shovel and his <laughs> eyeballs fucking pop out, you were like, oh, okay, I see. <laughs> um, to kind of catapult, really, from what you were saying, Tyler, here's my journey with Blood Diner. Watched it for the first time about three weeks ago. Since watching it three weeks ago, I've watched it two more times. I've watched it three times over the last three weeks. <laughs> Holy shit. And this is something we, like, Aaron and I have talked about a couple times. I know I keep bringing this up with certain horror movies, but this is unlike anything I've ever seen before i didn't think like a hundred plus episodes in i would still be saying that but i am i didn't think 80s trash horror could hit me in a a way that blood diner does and it did absolutely did and kind of jump off what what you're saying the first watch as I was watching it, I was like, I can't believe they're doing this. I can't believe you're doing this. I can't believe this is what I'm watching. I don't know if this is good, but it's also so insane and so fucking weird that I don't think it's bad either. And I, I wasn't thinking like past the shock value of what I was seeing on screen with that first watch too much. And then after that first watch is when I started really thinking about it. The second and third watch is when I came to the conclusion that Blood Diner 
is a mess. It is rough around the edges, like you said, Heather. But I think this movie is way more clever than what it's showing on the surface. Mm -hmm. I think this movie does need a reevaluation by the horror community. And I'm really kind of shocked it hasn't had one that major because there is a lot on this movie's mind that I think would be very relevant to today. And I I think one of you guys on Twitter actually brought this up. And I thought the same exact thing. There's a scene early on in the movie where... (laughs) women are doing naked aerobics and they're literally like all topless and it's like 12 to 15 women all topless in this aerobics class. God bless those women, especially the curvier, bustier one on the corner. I would much rather get murdered than <laughs> do jumping jacks without a supporter bra on. Like, yeah. bless them. <laughs> well, so and, and this is one of you guys tweeted this out and I like, I thought the same thing. Then what happens is one of the brothers in a Ronald Reagan mask yeah. bursts into the room and guns them all down like murders them in cold blood they're wearing ronnie and nancy masks yeah coming in and murdering all these quote-unquote sluts you know doing this immoral thing yeah it's very much it's on purpose it's all on purpose god damn it ronnie that's where like really cracked open everything that's happening in this movie is on purpose even to the point where i thought a lot of stuff that is quote-unquote bad filmmaking like the horrible adr line or the cop who sounds like she's from australia then britain Uh then like jersey but then i I think it was almost Jackie Kong's sense of humor coming through with a lot of the stuff that wasn't working. When I met the movie on its level and I treated everything as purposeful, even like the strings that are attached to like the monster, all of it's purposeful. The trash is purposeful. The stitching of this movie is all purposeful. But then there's also, I think, a lot of meat to it, for lack of better terms, (laughs) in terms of greater themes to it. And Jackie Kong, I didn't know anything about her work until this movie. And I'm more interested now in checking out anything she's done now as well here's a female director at the height of 80s horror putting a movie like this out that's super transgressive tons of violence towards women tons of nudity literally like one of the gags after that scene where they get murdered by the brothers and and the reagan masks is like them chopping a leg and the butt is jiggling from one of the women of the leg they're chopping and that's when i was just like this movie has a lot more on its mind than people really give it credit yeah i i listened to another podcast i'm not going to name them because i won't start shit on your podcast with another podcast but when you come on mine I'm gonna fuckers. they watch blood diner and they said oh this movie's just random things just happen for no reason this movie obviously has something to say but even then it doesn't know what it has to say and i gotta disagree with that my rewatch of this because i saw it years ago and then watching it last week again with my powerful adult brain i was like oh my god the reagan mask filmed in the height of the reagan era of excess where there's a president who historically killed a lot of poor women with his policies Mm -hmm. is just gunning down women Mm -hmm. in this scene. Like, yeah, it's on the nose, but another movie didn't do that. Another horror movie didn't do that. And the thing about this movie that I think separates it from other 80s horror movie is that the women characters in it have more agency than other victims. Like, I think of the karate victim, the naked karate victim later in this movie. None of these women are treated as helpless almost ever, and their helplessness is almost a feature or a joke in the movie like when the lady drops her tampons right before she's about to get murdered there's a lot Mm -hmm. this movie has to say about women 
and women's role in horror. Yeah, yeah give me an analysis on Naked Karate Woman. That's true. I care like, a lot about Blood Diner. And I've thought a lot about Blood Diner. And I think Derek made a great point that everything... No, is, I'm with you. I've thought about a lot about this movie, too, the last few weeks. No, this, everything is intentional because Nate pointed this out to me because he started watching the Blood Diner commentary. Well, yeah. Like, did anyone on this call like listen to the commentary? It's amazing. No. I did not. No, I haven't. So I own this on Blu-ray, but because we've moved, I've got 90% of my movies packed up still, so I couldn't get to the disc for this, but I really want to oh. listen to the commentary track Please after you mentioned it. it. It's, it's a masterclass. Ten minutes into the movie start, she's like, okay, yeah, no, I applied the Fellini casting method with these characters, because like none of the characters in this, in this movie are actors, professional actors, Yeah, right? Most of them are just, she hired characters mm-hmm. who, who looks the weirdest, yeah. who looks the saddest, like mm-hmm. the, um, the, the sad veggie chef. The, with um, the dummy, the guy who has the dummy. With the yeah. dummy, yes. Yeah. <laughs> My first watch, I was so fucking confused for a second in that scene. It's so good. Why is it a control? I want me to blow all your minds right now about that dummy. Okay, so <laughs> she was given a script. And, and she read it and she threw it away because that dummy was an actual guy in the script, an actual like living person that was talking and moving around and stuff. She's like, no, this is a dummy now. <laughs> Queen shit. I love that. Yeah. And it's like, honestly, that's so brave as a director to make the choice of th- this person that was wrote as a character is now a dummy in this guy's head. Honestly, like I love her. I love Jackie Kong. She, and she's incredibly smart too. So not to get like too inside baseball on how this movie was made. No, I think it, this is the podcast for that they do that no this is is absolutely it so go for it yeah no it's a three-week shooting schedule is what they had yeah which is insane they had three weeks like you know the way that she talked about the planning process like she had a complete set of shot notes for the entire thing yeah she drew out every shot it was 30 pages of notes for shots none of this was weak at all that's insane and like you know she was working on a shoestring budget and she got something out of it which again like it's schlocky Right. Like mm-hmm. we, we all accept that it's a little bit schlocky. Rough around the edges. Right. But it's shot impeccably. Right. And as soon as you turn on the commentary, too, she points out another thing that kind of blew my mind, which is that every single shot in the movie has your classic foreground, mid-ground, background shot. Each layer has something going on. Mm-hmm. And like that that can't be true. I, I, I've seen this movie <laughs> five times. That That's not true at all. But it's absolutely it's true. So true. <laughs> scene where they're going down the hallway in the sheriff's office or whatever and those people are just like fighting in the background well to heather's point like each scene is maximalist like so that's insane that this had a three-week shoot oh yeah with each scene as detailed and shit is happening everywhere in every scene and the amount of gore effects in this movie that's insane mm-hmm. to me it must have been a network <laughs> yeah well and the other thing that this movie felt like and i'm gonna go for it this is this is gonna be a take like john carpenter did with some of his movies blood diner i feel like squeezes every single dollar it has in its budget mm-hmm. as much yeah, as it can yeah, totally yeah. jackie kong really you feel that she is taking as much as she can out of each dollar that she has in her small budget oh yeah more wig work than malignant going on there yeah, <laughs> yeah. That was intentional though in the commentary she says everyone in the scene is wearing a wig because because I think wigs are funny and I think they look good. Hell yeah. <laughs> right. 
that goes back to the point of nothing is random in this movie because even the stuff that is random that isn't necessarily like tied to some greater theme is jackie kong's sense of humor like this is a joke if you think it's yeah. random it's not it, it it's her being funny and like that's what i always took out of it, it it's carefully constructed chaos right and that's yes it doesn't yep. feel overly planned or structured right it feels wild mm-hmm. right like you don't yeah. hit that by accident right it's something that she wrote down on paper right every wild you know i, I don't know how far i want to jump ahead but like during the club scene where mm-hmm. things start really getting out of hand it feels like somebody was just wandering around a show floor just like shooting random zombie scenes but like every single one of those were just carefully carefully constructed yeah it's silly but with a brain which might be my favorite genre of comedy mm-hmm. yeah that's uncle anwar he's in the jar yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i mean it is like there is almost like an animorphs but if animorphs had way more titties and blood and, and guts kind of energy to it where it's like yes it is chaos but it is intelligent chaos but man that scene and it, it it's a tropey like classic gag of running over someone oh the person's getting back up let me back up over them to kill them but the fact that she does it like six times i was busting a gut at that scene one thing i learned listening to the commentary with her was that she is very acutely aware of what us horror fans would be watching for and expecting so she intentionally tries to subvert that every single time she can fantastic yeah. love that that's you get stuff like that that's why you get stuff like the guy getting his head run over and it cuts back to the other guy and he goes hey man are you okay yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she knows what we are expecting to see and she basically says fuck you to us and gives us something completely different they do that at the very beginning because it's almost like any 80s slasher where it's pov and you think like something's bad is about to happen to this these kids um which again by the way we said it as a joke girl like at the beginning of this episode the movie opens with a mom being like i gotta leave and go get more tampons you could, you could stay here but like instead of the killer like busting through the door and then murdering these children My two it's their uncle and that's always a trope i always really appreciate uncle yeah it's like when a psychopath like is about to do something and you think they're about to hurt like a child but then they're like a family member that adores the child and vice versa and there's a, this psychotic energy between like the little kid and their uncle or dad or whatever like i love that trope of just oh they're related and they actually love each other even though like the parental figure is a mass murdering psychopath so there's a little bit of that energy in Jackie Kong's real life story. So her mother was an actress and she had a lot of great connections through that, but still struggled to find work because this was a time when obviously people of color weren't getting a whole lot of roles, you know, so her mother was kind of always on the back burner and taking those kinds of roles, but she still rubbed shoulders with tons of people, made tons of friends, right? So Kong spent a lot of time at theaters doing stage plays, movies with her mom. Robert Downey Sr. was Jackie Kong's mentor and like whatever we want to say about Robert Downey Jr. being like the face of corporate commercial Disney film making at this point robert denny senior's stuff is wildly transgressive and underground cult cinema for the time stuff like putney swope and pound are just ludicrous that those movies got made at the time so it's wild to me that he was her mentor and so she's already growing up learning from somebody who brought this extremely crazy satirical edge and surreal kind of aspect to everything 
She met him through her mother. She also knew Marlon Brando. Marlon Brando was like <laughs> a family friend. He gave her her first camera after he saw one of her shorts. And Marlon Brando is notoriously like a fucking crazy person. So there's definitely some of that real Uncle Anwar kind of energy from these real life Hollywood people that encouraged her to get into filmmaking and told her, don't take shit from anybody. Always do what you want to do. Break barriers. So you think there was a moment in her life where like Marlon Brando broke down their door and was like covered in cocaine and sweating and he's like here's a camera I bought you. Probably so. <laughs> yeah. Probably so. Just like hey, Jackie I brought you a camera. But <laughs> Kong had people in her life that were telling her like don't deal with anybody else's bullshit. Do what you want to do. Trust your own instincts. Also, the industry is fucking terrible. Don't be a part of it. So she had these weird competing messages from people and kind of took what she needed from all these people to kind of forge her own path. And it's super interesting, too, because she kind of had this very, like, punk rock style and energy and culture from L.A. at that time that she was bringing into her movies. She had a very, very female-centric crew that she worked with as well, which was very unusual at the time. Ellen Stelhoff was the producer of this movie, and she's just as instrumental to it getting made as anybody else. So... Like you were saying earlier, there's like a very female center to this movie that you wouldn't necessarily expect on the outside. So all all that said about Jackie Kong herself, right? This movie could have been significantly more boring and just way more run-of-the-mill, way more your average splatter horror movie for the time. Producer Jimmy Maslin purchased the sequel rights to Herschel Gordon Lewis's 1963 splatter film Blood Feast, um, which Herschel Gordon Lewis, for you know listeners who might not know, he is the grandfather of gore. I knew I recognized that name from somewhere. Yeah. yeah. I don't know that I have really brought him up or discussed him on the show with you necessarily. No, but I, I've looked him up since like we started this podcast and like I'm constantly looking for new movies to add to our list. And I've come across his name a couple times. Yeah. And Nate and Tyler, I'm sure you guys know who I'm talking mm-hmm. about, but he was one of the first guys that really, really pushed the boundaries in terms of gore, in terms of sexuality and nudity, in terms of just subject matter in general. I mean, he is one of those OG guys that kind of pushed horror into that next level, but in a very, very lo-fi, low-budget DIY kind of way. Yeah, he was that guy who uh, pointed the gun at the audience in that movie with the train. (laughs) (laughs) Stupid. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Nope, those those jokes are appreciated on our show. So yeah, the original idea for this movie was that it was just going to be a sequel to Blood Feast, right? He wanted Herschel Gordon Lewis to direct the movie himself, which he had been retired at this point. And originally, the brothers were going to be wrestler George the Animal Steel and Michael Berryman from The Hills Have Eyes and Voyage of the Rock Aliens and Cut and Run, which Cut and Run, directed by Ruggiero Diodato, director of Cannibal Holocaust, R.I.P., he just passed. (laughs) I like Turtles. Yeah, Turtles. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, that that was a very tasteless joke. (laughs) Whatever, we're talking about Blood Diner. Like, taste is out the window at this point. But yeah, like, it was very clear that... The $330,000 budget was just not going to accommodate any of the three of them, right? But I I do love that there's still elements of that that still bleed through into what we actually got with Blood Diner because there's the whole Egyptian... I was glancing through Blood Feast and it has to deal with the 
Pharaoh Ramses and like Ramses Pharaoh curse, I guess. It's like an Egyptian guy who's making the blood feast. Yeah. The blood buffet for, you know, this Egyptian goddess to be resurrected. It's a lot of the same idea. I mean, you could basically imagine that Uncle Anwar is the character from yeah. Blood Feast, right? Uh, didn't she just change all the names? Like in the original, it was the Sumerians and this, it's the Lumerians and yeah. the original, it was Ishtar and this, it's Shitar. Yeah. So I, that's the thing. Like, I love the fact that, like you said, took the nugget of the story, threw everything else out the window, and just kind of started from this more surreal punk rock, Pee Wee's Playhouse, you know, John Waters trash kind of angle. And instead of having Georgie Animal Steel, she kept pro wrestling elements with a little jimmy hitler <laughs> yeah what the fuck who might be who's supposed to be the good guy at first because like the crowd was cheering for him <laughs> <laughs> my real take on that wrestling scene is the two brothers are so just obnoxious and kind of abhorrent that the only way to make you cheer for one of the brothers is to have him fight a literal nazi like <laughs> that's the only thing they could think of that was worse <laughs> well, i mean with george uh, we're getting the first film portrayal, positive portrayal of an incel. I mean, he's a hyper-masculine moron <laughs> yeah. who's never had sex. I mean, shout out to the real ones listening right now who know what that is. <laughs> yeah, even though you, it's established that these brothers are like murdering pieces of shit, there's a scene where little Jimmy Hitler like cuts a promo and it's like anyone who wants a cha- open challenge like this weekend and like he goes, I'm going to kill that Nazi bastard. Like even he says, fuck Nazis. And like, I was like, okay, cool cool yeah all right well one of the things that jackie kong got in trouble with the ratings board was the ratings board thought her two brother characters were too nice yeah she very went out of her way to make them sort of charismatic and nice and not in a typical horror movie fashion it's like oh these are just two idiot brothers who would be your friends you know if this were not a horror movie it was very intentional making them a little charismatic and a little fun and not outwardly cruel well they definitely have that bundy energy being very handsome and charming at least michael does like you said there was a lot of why are you making the hero characters in air quotes the bad guys right and she was definitely seeing it more from the standpoint of what makes them the hero characters by default just they're good looking white guys because cool if that's the angle like again let's look at bundy let's look at all these other serial killers we've had over the last couple of years you know they're never once mean in the way that they kill people in this entire movie i like they, they never really like you know take pleasure in it well they take pleasure in it but it's never like malicious pleasure it's always just like we're having fun yeah there's not the sadistic like sexual yeah. pleasure that a murderer could have it's either hapless or just kind of bumbling yeah yeah and, and that seems new right that seems <laughs> new for like 87 i don't know yeah yeah it, it, there's not like a like oh i'm gonna like have sex with their corpse now it's more like i want to see what happens when i deep fry this woman's body and then laugh when i literally hit the head and like a t-ball it goes flying off her body like the sexual angle isn't there it's more just oh i have a job well i may as well like was it you never work a day in your life if you have a job that you have fun at that's kind of like what they're trying to turn some of these kills into yeah it's a bunch of dad joke murderers you know well it's like (laughs) yeah yeah. there's an interesting theory to be made and i don't know if i'm smart enough enough to make it but one of the things about them having to kill all these women they have to kill all these immoral women to collect their body parts and sacrifice a virgin to the goddess shitar sexuality and genitals factor into this because anytime uncle anwar talks he's saying oh i let my schlong do the thinking and i got confused or if i had my penis right now i'd show you what real machismo was and there's this really 
sort of interesting balance that they have where every part of the woman is important to build the perfect goddess. But in terms of men, the only thing that really matters is our penis. And I kind of love that it reduces uh, the men in horror into morons that are either cruel, stupid, hapless, or just ineffective. Like, I think that's a nice change in the way horror movies treat men. Well, and and with them being the violence towards women and their whole goal, at the end of the day, the brothers and Uncle Anwar are all answering to a goddess. Mm -hmm. They're all doing this for a woman, for a goddess, a womanly figure. Uh, I found that also very interesting as well, that all the shit that was happening was in her name. And they're not trying to, like, resurrect this goddess from the standpoint of we will then be her mates you know she will be our queen and we'll be her king it's never from that angle it's always just from like a yes she tar step on me mommy kind of way yeah Yeah. please let me feed myself to your vagina dentata on your chest I just want to hang out yeah. with a cool <laughs> Superman. Right? I mean, like, you know, they, like, eventually when, when they do bring Shitar, you know, across and, and, you know, Shitar embodies the Frankenstein, they just point at people. It's like, blow up that one. <laughs> you know, like, right. And I mean, when you boil this movie down to its essence, it's that uncles will go a long way to become trans because in the end, it's Anwar's brain and Shitar's body. I mean, is that is that what you got out of this movie? No, that's not what I got out of this <laughs> so movie. I did, I did read yes. a theory on Reddit. Like after we watched this movie, I was looking at this, and some guy was posting on all the hard threads. Like this movie is really about a trans man helping his dead uncle become his living aunt. And I was like, <laughs> wait a minute, what? So apparently, in the first scenes so of the the movie opens, the two brother characters are children. One of the children is played by a female actor. Mm-hmm. It's Jackie Kong's daughter, mm-hmm. Roxanne Osco. It was her daughter with Bill Osco. Yeah. Oh, shit. I didn't realize that. Yeah. And then so you grow up and it's two men, two brothers, you know, that are doing this together. And then eventually they put their uncle's brain into Shitar. So there is some gender fuckery going on here that I did not pick up on at all. But then when I was thinking about it after, I was like, wait a minute. This just adds like another level of delicious weirdness to this very weird movie. It totally fits because this movie has this weird undercurrent of the 50s, right? Like, you know, we, we start out in kind of the 1950s mm-hmm. and then there's like a bunch of doo-wop music. All throughout uh, the movie. Like yeah. threading throughout the movie. And it's kind of almost saying like the old ways are dead let's try some new weird stuff Mm -hmm. right (laughs) (laughs) with gender new weird stuff according to names meat get it out of here we don't need no meat (laughs) vegetarian only you think of that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but no, I mean, it's less of like, you know, thinking about the present, but more about like thinking about how horrible the past was, how mm-hmm. bad the 50s really were. Yeah, because a lot of the a lot of people still even now are like, oh, the 50s was the time when America was America. And even in this movie, when Uncle Anwar is talking about the 50s, what he's imagining is a guy beating a half naked woman to death like that's showing on screen. It's playing nice 50s music. And he's like, oh, they were a different, better time. I really the, knew what I was doing. Was the people live for a reason. And yeah. it's like you're watching women men get beat by sweaty dudes in tank tops like ooh, but it's still comedy it's still comedy <laughs> <laughs> yeah because like the, well, i mean the way he's describing it it's like this whole men were men kind of speech but yeah you're right it was just only like men being sociopathic dickheads basically in all those flashback scenes but it ends with him becoming something new in she talks yeah. like he becomes the like 
terrifying feminine you know that's when he's really powerful when he taps into the feminine side right and i I hate to harp on this but shitar's power is a giant vagina that she eats with on her chest like genitals in this movie play an important weird role that i don't know i haven't fully thought out like uncle anwar he constantly talks about his penis and how it's in the way or causes trouble he says nephews don't be like me don't let your penis rule your life it's a cursed object he he needed (laughs) to get rid of it right (laughs) so in the beginning the reason why he got caught right was because he he you know ravaged the glee club oh he raped and killed the glee club and then he cut his penis off that's right because he's like oh you know this thing needs to get out of the way it's only causing problems oh god i have a lot more in common with uncle yeah he fucked up the ritual that's right he messed up the ritual oh man there's some shit in blood diner huh that we're just kind of talking through (laughs) Wow. (laughs) This movie has a lot more on its mind than what you think. You know, there's such a history of queer people identifying with the monster in horror movies. You know, there's there's a long history of that. If you want to know more about it, the Queer for Fear documentary that just came out on Shudder, give that a watch. It's four parts. But there's such a history of that because I think for a long time, queer people have been treated as we're the other, we're deviant, there's something wrong with us, right? And so I personally have always been a huge fan of when the queer coded monster ends up just saying fuck you and just wreaking havoc right because it's that trope of oh you think I'm horrible I'm not but because you forced me into this corner you're yeah. gonna see me become that you know and you're I'm gonna, gonna own this it. yeah yeah and so I do love it as a trans story the idea of the uncle becoming the murder aunt who is now kind of identifying in her new body and is just gonna be here to fuck shit up yeah and going to live her best life in LA and just murder dudes, yeah. And yeah, I do kind of love that this movie shot through the female gaze because the very end of the movie, the guy's like, hey baby, before I stick my big old sausage in you, what do they call you? (laughs) She goes, they call me Sheetar. Hey baby, right before I stick my big sausage in you, what do they call you? They call me Sheetar. Well, and, and he's just fine with it. (laughs) <laughs> he's just yeah. like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They drive off that. together, yeah. That cat call was like the most purposely over the top cat call. It was honestly like, what if a fifth grader who just went through puberty like got to write a cat call towards somebody? Like, this would be kind of like what pops in their brain. Yeah, but he he sucks, and like you know, we, we're happy. It's a happy ending. <laughs> it is that happy. Guy, it is. It is. Yeah. yeah, it was fantastic. I love that he was down with it. He was just ready. Ready to ride. Which, by the way, that fucking band during the whole scene in the nightclub. Oh, you mean Dino in the white trashes? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. There was some butthole surfer ass energy with that band, man. Yeah. Closer to Guar, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I looked them up a little bit. Yeah, it's Dino Lee, a.k.a. The King of White Trash and the White Trash Review. The song specifically from the club scene is Everybody Get Some and Stud Pony.
But yeah, they were like an Austin-based performance band. Like maybe five or six tracks got recorded and like put on a compilation kind of thing later. But I read a really fucking interesting kind of memoir from one of the women who was in that group. And uh, she described them as a shock rock, funk, punk, Tex-Mex, 12-person show band. That's kind of exactly what it fucking is. If you look up pictures of them, their shows looked pretty insane. And I can imagine because the guy, the main guy, Dina Lee, is from L.A. And then they mostly performed everything around the Austin and Texas area. But I can definitely imagine Jackie Kong is the one who, like, found this group and was like, yo, I want them in the movie. (laughs) Now, the question is, did they perform, like, outside the movie? Like, half of them dressed up like Hitler also, not just little Jimmy Hitler. But they dressed up like different weird shit in every single one of their shows if you look at photos like everybody in the band is dressed up but yeah that was just like one of those weird touches where i was like yeah what punk scene was she kind of tapped into that she found this weird rockabilly funk group fronted by this guy who's got a like massive hindenburg sized pompadour wig on i really hope that was his wig or at least that he got to keep Oh yeah, that's totally his wig because he's he's wearing that in all the other stuff that they used to do. Well, and that, that's kind of why I got some Butthole Surfers vibes from them because the early Butthole Surfers shows were very much like shock rock shit like that. And uh, Gibby Haynes also was a bit of a performance artist like that too. Yeah, it has that vibe. It has that Guar vibe. It has that early Ellis Cooper kind of vibe. Yeah. As far as music goes, the other nice touch I liked was having the weird, super fast, intense, kind of hypnotic juxtaposition of the white trash music with fucking Wagner's Tannhauser mm-hmm. overture. <laughs> that just being like so epic to have as they are awakening Sheetar and she's literally fucking blasting people's heads like watermelons with laser fingers. Everybody in the club is turning into a zombie and eating each other. It's just like a weird, hilarious touch because Tannhauser, that entire opera is literally about this poet who spends an entire year in the fantasy underworld of Venus and writes his ultimate work, which is literally a plea to Venus saying, hey, let me just go back to the real world. And so it's kind of this weird, oh yeah, the brothers have spent their whole lives, you know, working toward this one moment where they resurrect Sheetar and now all of a sudden she's here and it's like, oops, shit, now uh, we are just the bait for her to move on and go on to greater things yeah, that's for my mind because she uses the powers of jupiter right like they, they call up the like oh through the power of the dark side of jupiter and like you know this the, that wagner yeah. thing is about like you know hanging out in venus it's very like you know <laughs> astrological everything <laughs> was intentional yep. yeah I, yeah the thing about it is the wagner is used twice in the movie each time having to do with resurrection so there's the wagner with a lot of nazi imagery and knowing how the nazis used wagner it's yeah. like what is all this sh- like how does this sh- 
shit coalesce together. I'm going to be thinking about this shit for a long time. What is she saying? <laughs> what is she saying? <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> uh, that's what I've been thinking about, too, actually. Between the little Jimmy Hitler character and then you turn around and half the band is dressed up like Hitler later on. There's got to be something there that she's trying to say, right? I think it's anti-Hitler. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. But like, exactly. exactly. All the Hitlers do die in this movie. Let's be upfront. Yeah, they do. they do. They do. I mean, Jimmy Hitler. There's also well, he gets like the bitten. extra weird layer of all the Lemuria stuff. Sorry. Lumeria, <laughs> not Lemuria, which is what it's actually making fun of. There's that whole fucking wrinkle, too. And I think it's one of those things where, like, she is commenting on the, like, obsessiveness of these brothers and their uncle and this whole weird occult thing that is all kind of built on this weird pseudoscience-y kind of background. You know, I think it's just a satire on anybody that gets kind of wrapped up into that occult stuff. Nancy Reagan. Yeah, yeah. Nancy Reagan, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nancy Reagan, perfect mm-hmm. example. She was all into fucking astrology, and so many policy decisions were made based on what their fucking maps looked like for that day, or charts, or whatever the fuck you call them. But yeah, there's like the whole layer of Lumeria, which is a play on Lemuria, which was this lost continent in the Indian Ocean that was first proposed in the mid-1800s by a zoologist. It's a coast-to-coast topic. It's a common coast-to-coast topic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So this zoologist came up with this theory as an explanation of why lemurs are found in both Madagascar and India. <laughs> yes, give me the lemur religion. Right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then the like noted occultist that a lot of fucking Nazism came out of, Helena Blavatsky, she would incorporate all this Lemuria shit into all of her writings and her magic systems as this lost home of these proto-humans with psychic abilities and ancient alien lineages and all this bullshit. You're flexing your last podcast muscles right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, obviously continental drift kind of killed this entire concept right because then it was just like no the pieces just used to fit together but all of that wrinkle as well too just kong to me at least clearly is commenting on just the insanity of all the shit we make up all these religious systems we look at what these brothers are doing and it seems nuts and it seems extreme and you know to put on my like our atheism hat for a minute it's a trilby right yeah i guess it's it is the trilby it's that little tiny (laughs) tea hat that you wear crooked <laughs> it's one of those just no it's not any more ridiculous or asinine or like crazy it's just not any more nuts than like anything else out there necessarily you know it's just not the flavor of the moment do you think that plays into the health feud angle there are two things i'm having a hard time squaring one is what is uh, jackie kong's relationship with nazis <laughs> and what is jackie kong's relationships to health food i i, I i'm still lost there <laughs> The food in this movie looks so disgusting and unappetizing. <laughs> very mayonnaise <laughs> Very mayonnaise Like so many like unidentifiable creams. And then for a vegetarian restaurant, every time they put vegetables on somebody's plate, they're the most bland canned beans. Yeah. Like, yeah. Horrible. So like a little bit of history on me. Like I grew up vegetarian. Like both my parents are vegetarian. So like, you know, I, I, I know the experience of going to a restaurant. Yes, for vegetarian food and they show up with just a 
raw head of lettuce. Here, here you go. I don't know what else to do with you. Like, so, so maybe it could be a commentary on that. Like, okay, like this is what we think vegetarians eat is just mayonnaise with carrots crisscrossed over it. But what they really want, they're just looking for some meat substitute that tastes exactly like meat. Yeah. In universe, that restaurant is bumping. Like everybody <laughs> is going to that. That is the vegetarian restaurant to go to. But people taste good. I mean, that's... Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we're going back to themes that Texas Chainsaw 2 talked about, Aaron, where like feeding the people back to them under the guise of health food and vegetarian food. I'm the Lord of the Harvest. Who's that? Some new health food bunch? <laughs> what was that scene where he's just like, oh, we're out of a, what was it, fish, not fish sticks, uh, something. It was, it was like fish, it was fish sticks. Was special, and yeah. he, he murders the guy real quick and then comes back with the fingers. The IRS agent, too, he murdered. Yes. <laughs> I love how thrower that is, too, because like when I watched it, it was like, that's going to get him. That's the thing that's going to get him, right? They might, like they Al murdered. Capone, yeah. Yeah, but that's part of the whole though. Like, she, yeah. that's a red herring that she planted on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. When I think about the food and all that stuff in Blood Dine, I think of it within the context of what time it's set in. The excess of the 80s is like the birth of the foodie yeah. movement. Like she, everything's being juiced for some reason. Yeah, she. it's obvious she has contempt for food critics and foodies with the character of vitamin C. <laughs> oh, you don't like vitamin C? Dude. I love vitamin C. <laughs> I loved him too. And like just any time he was on screen and all the burps he was making... <laughs> It made me cringe in a way I didn't think I, a movie could make me cringe, but like I enjoyed it because it was just like disgusting. Yeah, but like it doesn't feel fat phobic in a weird way, and I can't explain why. Like, <laughs> no. it, it, no. what does he mean? No, I, it's, no. Uh, ooh, it's complicated. <laughs> Look, <laughs> I just saw the whale, so I can say all these things. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, I got to hear your takes on oh, that. Oh, the whale? One. Oh, boy. <laughs> Yeah, I almost made it my horror recommendation. <laughs> no, the whale's the movie that's going to stick with me. It's fucking fantastic, but I don't know. It's it wasn't so much fat phobic in Blood Diner. It was more isn't this person a hypocrite? He's claiming this is health food while shoveling his face all day, twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. I think it's the hypocrisy of people calling what they were eating health food and just still eating to excess, L looking for easy solutions. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. To take that further he is a walking trope that I know Aaron really loves of a puke scene, a vomit <laughs> scene where he projectile vomits. Cause I, I do love that. He, like him and George are antagonistic to each other and George fucks him up every time he mouths off a little too much. So he pukes and then he, I think there's a throwaway line after he pukes me like, now I got to start all gotta over start again. All over. Yeah. And he, then he starts shoveling his face again, full of stuff to that point yeah. you were making. What I love about the puke scene too, is that the extras in this movie are fantastic. I love every single, character in this movie and like when the extras are getting like hit with the vomit gun like you can tell that Jackie Kong did not tell them that how mm -hmm. high, high powered this thing yeah, would be yeah. <laughs> like they, they win their mouth and like you could see honest reactions of the saying this tastes gross because <laughs> in the commentary she says oh yeah no it actually stunk up the joint we had to cancel shooting for the day <laughs> like it, it was not like human consumption ready vomit <laughs> but yeah it, well it looks gross too it's it like does, this yeah. weird it's sludgy chunky brown. brown yeah like goo I just imagine it's a bunch of candy of some kind of early 80s chunky Campbell soup that they maybe just mix with <laughs> something yeah. awful like strawberry milk. You know, it was just like those two things put them together blasting through a super soaker. I, I do love that. Again, that must have been Jackie Kong's sense of humor. Of like, let me fuck with these extras. I feel like my brain that is hardwired to really appreciate like that Tim and Eric anti-comedy 
weird, surreal, mm-hmm. dark shit is very much on board with everything that Jackie Kong is doing. Oh, yeah, I absolutely agree. That sensibility runs through this movie. It's anti-comedy and also fuck you for watching this. <laughs> fuck you for thinking you know what I'm going to do <laughs> because you will not. Yeah. There are just some of the weird comedy moments that got me so much like the beginning scene where in the graveyard after he like knocks the guy's eyes out with the shovel then he picks up that body and just like yeets it over the fence <laughs> just goes flying the other scene that killed me is when they're putting the acrylic nails on the shitar body <laughs> just putting this long red acrylic nails on it died loved that so much george just picks up the the w- dead woman's head and goes hi i'm the god of shitar and it's just such a like a, a like elementary school joke but it fucking got me so bad i don't know why There's, no. they're playing with balls right like even before they, they they kick off their plan to make a shitar he makes a vegetable shitar in the back just as like practice. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and like, I love that. Like, I love like simple George. <laughs> like, he's, he, I think he's my favorite character in the whole thing. Cause he's, he's just, he's a child with superhuman strength and, you know, loves his brother. He's the male version of the dumb blonde trope. <laughs> that's, yeah. That's what he is. The murderous himbo. Yeah. <laughs> the himbo. I yeah. love, I love the beginning when Uncle Anwar shows up and he's like, Oh, Georgie, I see you've been practicing your cooking. And it's just the little kid thing of like, I made food out of Play Doh. <laughs> And you're like, oh, that's cute. Yeah, everybody did that when they were a kid. They made their little eggs with Play-Doh. But then it cuts back to Georgie, and he's just sitting there fucking chewing on the Play-Doh like a dummy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's that sort of stupid humor, and then peppered in are just these absurd pieces of dialogue that you'll never hear anywhere else. And I wrote two of them down because they're both from the police chief. There's one that says, okay, I was, I was about to say, hopefully one of them is that guy on the beach who was like, I'm so horny, I I could fuck a cow. <laughs> yeah. There's a, uh, hold on this one. <laughs> When you're a detective long enough, you develop a sixth sense of the diabolical and it surreptitiously pulls at your trousers. <laughs> I love that line. And then Sheba Jackson, she blew the enema bag rapist case wide open. Just yeah. trying to think through, like he just blows right through it in his weird accent. See, like that to me screams like trauma almost like that that like we're in trauma territory yeah. when we we can do that well you made a great point uh, before we started recording nate when we were just talking about the movie is that this movie feels closer to like a jackass than say a horror movie yeah it does and well then, that, that's trauma isn't it i mean yeah 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 this is very like west coast trauma energy for sure one thing i do appreciate about this movie is there is a ton of titties and ass in it but we talked a little bit about it being through a female gaze There's a ton of nudity, but it's definitely in more of the like, everybody loves titties. Yeah. Like, asses are fun and not like super exploitative. It's just a fun eye. I'll be real. The first scene with the nude aerobics, that was a lot of titties. But the scene, like you said, where you could just get a close up of a butt, and it's a nice butt. But the fact that it's a nice butt is like way overshadowed by the fact that it's clearly somebody with one of those electric turkey carvers just jiggling the butt cheeks. And that's 99 <laughs> times funnier that it overshadows the fact that you're like literally looking at an ass on the screen. So yeah. On the wild thing about it with all these transgressive ideas ideas and schlock that this movie is playing with the thing that blows my mind and i I don't know if you guys would maybe 100 percent agree with me on this but compared to like other shit we've covered aaron like cannibal holocaust or like silent night deadly night 
it doesn't feel mean spirited. Oh yeah, not at all. None no. of this does, and it's kind of fucking wild with everything that actually happens on screen and a lot of the stuff that this movie is about. And by the way, <laughs> if you haven't got the hit listeners, like don't watch this with your kids. This is like a very capital A adult <laughs> horror movie, even though it is very slapstick. Yeah, there's full frontal nudity in this. Yeah, not enough yeah. penis for my taste. Yeah. but that you know, I'm a niche guy. Well, you know, Dino Lee had his had his fake penis. That's the one <laughs> yeah. thing I wanted to bring up with the band scene. Before before we totally leave it, is that the, the Dino Lee, when he comes out, you guys were all focused on the pompadours. He comes out with this baloney log as his penis. <laughs> yeah, as a stick. Taking it off and throwing it out into the crowd. Oh, God. Yeah, I don't know how you just, like, glossed over that one. That, and I made the point about Uncle Anwar cutting his dick off and becoming a one. Oh, God. <laughs> wow. wow. No, no like, back. to go back to that nude aerobic scene, horror movies, they're known for being exploitative and, like, we're going to see some nudity because this is a horror movie there's gonna be a sex scene this is why i paid for me a horror pervert yeah <laughs> i'm ready to play vermin right now in the theater show me something friday the 13th part four you are so overwhelmed with nudity in the very first scene with nudity that i think that's the choice mm-hmm. and i think that that's the choice because the very next thing that happens is all these people are gunned down but the first person gunned down in that group is the man the violence in the movie is initially yeah. directed towards like the first two victims are men and then the women are killed but all the women victims in this movie have agency which is weird and not common for horror movies of this era well and the body parts aren't fetishized either right yes there's a, a lot of titties in this movie but in a weird way it's it's very like not sexualized right it's very much just meat yeah, like all of it's just meat. They all just turn into soup du jour at the end of the day. <laughs> you know, because all they care about in this scene is really the tongues, right? Yeah, they like, wanted eight tongues. They just wanted the tongues. They didn't <laughs> care about anything else. <laughs> you know, and I'm the cave what scene too. What do you do with eight tongues? Well, hold on. That's for the Patreon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> make a belt? Yeah, Sheetar needs a belt. Yeah, what did fucking Ed Gein do with eight tongues? I don't know. Did he make a belt? Or was that nipples? I can't remember. It was nipples. It was nipples. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the, uh, the cave oh. scene we joked about it earlier the moment where georgie shows up with the axe to murder the two people that are about to fuck on the beach you know you think okay there's this fully naked woman this is about to be this goggly transgressive kind of scene where we see this naked woman get murdered and then it turns the scene around and she is just full bush out karate kicking the fuck out of georgie and beating his ass <laughs> and like would have gotten away had that fucking stalactite not fallen from the cave and clunked her in the head right the stalactite out of nowhere was hysterical i did take it as like the echoes from her like karate noises that she was making <laughs> no it was <laughs> it was georgie's scream right that- because, because like she grabbed the schlong right she was like squeezing his penis as hard as she could and like you know georgie was howling yeah and yeah. the echoes in the caves caused the slag tight because it hangs tight to the ceiling right you remember no <laughs> i mean you're probably right i just don't remember no, stalactites <laughs> are on the ground like tight. they're yeah they're tight. tight for a ceiling right Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> We're smart. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I can talk all day long about feminist theory and like gender ideology, but you're going to talk to me about stalactites versus stalagmite? I don't want none of that. <laughs> well, and I love when she's like kicking the shit out of him and then grabs him by the balls. She does that Terminator eyes wide open, just staring him in the face, like menacingly. What's great? Yeah. You expected the scene is the axe murderer kills the woman. Yeah. And the very first shot of the scene of them on dressing as a wide shot of the entire cave in center at the very top of the screen is that 
stalactite. Yeah. It's right there from the get-go. Mm-hmm. You don't notice it, but your brain notices it. Yeah, it's a dangler. Thank Gotta you watch out. for the gift <laughs> of a giant bush. A uh, few things I love more. Also, I, I do feel that woman's rage. Because if I was about to get down with somebody and they said, I'm so horny, I could fuck a cow. I would be so offended. Like, why do you want to fuck a cow? I'm right here. Like, that would also give me enough rage, I think, <laughs> to beat beat the shit out of somebody. And she had a good point. It's in a cave. There's bugs. It's gross. <laughs> yeah. Sand gets places. Yeah. Uh, speaking as someone who knows, yeah. sand gets places. I believe it. You got to use baby sure powder does. to get it all off. Okay. <laughs> the other thing she does to subvert the trope because then you you just think the guy comes off as just also the horror movie jock that's also about to get killed by jason you're thinking like oh he's gonna treat her like shit she's just something he wants to bang but then like when police are there and the crime is being investigated and her body is being taken yeah. away he's like he's like down broke down, down, cry. down crying yeah. and like loved her and was just like i just wanted to fuck on a beach with her i loved her so much it's not my fault she wanted to leave she was scared Easy, buddy. Take it easy. But I made a mistake because I was horny and now she's dead. Can you remember anything, Buzz? Anything at all? Who knocked you out? Oh, Cindy. Oh, my God, Cindy. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Cindy. Oh, God. Snap out of it, man. Who killed your girl? I don't know. It was so dark and it grabbed me so quick and, and then everything went black. I, I, I can't remember. I can't remember. I can't remember. He's going to the hospital now. It's just like yet another like horror trope. She's kind of like subverting and making fun of. He was the sensitive one. Yeah, he, yeah. He, could he was the sensitive one. And like he was the, the scream king after the end of it. Like he was just terrified. No, that's not the right term. He's screaming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's a soft lad. He was going full Sean Penn in Mystic River for his girlfriend getting killed yeah. by a cave. <laughs> yeah. He said my daughter in there! He said my daughter in there! No! No! Yeah, meanwhile, in that same scene, Detective Shepard is literally just walking around the crime scene, just waving his fucking gun <laughs> in every direction, scratching his head with his gun, pointing the gun at people. Holy fuck. Yeah. This movie paints the cops as so incompetent by choice. Nate, do you want to talk about what was in the commentary? What? The fish. Oh, yeah. Well, so these detectives, they're, they're just kind of peppered throughout the movie. They're always like 20 steps behind, mm-hmm. right? And they show up immediately after things have resolved themselves, no matter what. Like, so as soon as the, the slactite murders the kung fu naked lady, <laughs> police are just all over that beach, mm-hmm. right? But like at the very beginning, uh, in the commentary, they're pouring these like little feeder fish into the big fish, right? And the idea there is that like, okay, it's supposed to symbolize, you know, feeding into shitar, mm-hmm. right? And then the next scene, yeah. the, the the cops accidentally bump the table and knock over all the fish, right? They're so bumbling that they cause more problems than they solve. Yeah, that was made very clear in the commentary from the first scene because the police chief knocks over the fish and only picks up a few of the fish from the fish tank and lets the others die. And Jackie Kong in the commentary is like, oh yeah, this was a choice to show that they're not really safe and that cops hurt more than they help. Right. <laughs> I think maybe the truly the most horrifying thing in this movie was dropping all those fish onto a carpet. Can you imagine? <laughs> that room is going <laughs> to smell like fish 
forever. A few scenes later, one of the women straight up calls one of the cops a jerk. So I'm like, all right, Blood Diner says all cops are jerks. We love it. <laughs> we support you. Go off Jackie Kong. Well, and I, that yeah. that whole fucking scene is mental because first you're like introduced to the chief who is already like cranked to 11. But then the detective is like ADR to fucking back <laughs> in that scene to like where it's almost... It sounds like a Bollywood film. Grave robbers. Maniac grave robbers. And it isn't even Halloween yet. What do you make of it, Mark? Beats me, Chief. Seems like the work of pathological weirdos. Without doubt, you must understand the deduction to date, my friend. But, but where are the clues? Can't say I found any. I interviewed the Watchman's daughter. Good-looking babe. She said he didn't have an enemy in the world. Damn good thing he didn't. As it was, his eyeballs were popped out of his head. The rest of his body was hacked to bits and strewn about like some ungodly jigsaw puzzle. There's got to be some clues here somewhere, Chief. We just got to put the pieces together and see what we've got. <sighs> You're right, Mark. You're always right. And a damn good detective, too, I might add. And that was intentional. She said she casted that guy on the spot because he sounded so weird. She's like, I need that guy. That's like Tim and Eric casting Richard Dunn. Yes. I need that yeah. weird energy in my movie. And the scene, like, when he meets Sheba Jackson and he starts taking his tongue out at her. In the commentary, <laughs> Jackie Kong's like, I told the actor more, more tongue, more, more tongue. Until he couldn't do any more tongue. And she kept it all in the movie. It's fucking incredible. I love her weird brain. Right? <laughs> like that that whole tongues thing it doesn't fit he's like he's trying to flirt but he's not doing a good job and he's yeah. really knows how to stick out his tongue <laughs> yeah. jackie kong really has a powerful adult yeah, yeah like, really truly really powerful adult. <laughs> there is one shot in this movie that i've never forgotten since i've watched this movie because i think it's the one true genuinely horror movie shot in this movie it's when the detective gets the hook in his leg and georgie's dragging him to the screen and you're getting the POV shot yeah. of the detective being dragged towards georgie with sheetar behind him black and screaming is like oh my god this woman can direct horror because i'm caught up in this because it's so put together as a nice beautiful shot well here's a question is that the only pov shot no the beginning yeah was beginning. Oh, well. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that was like her yeah. i guess friday the 13th style slasher mm-hmm. gimmick yeah but it's it's rare though because they don't want that perspective right it's not a horror movie <laughs> well it is but it is yeah But everything at that beginning scene, to y'all's point, is her just doing the exact horror movie tropes that you're used to and kind of saying, yeah, I can do this shit. Like, it's not that fancy. It's not that complicated. Mm -hmm. But then there's, like you said, the Chekhov's stomach vagina (laughs) mouth that you know they've got to use at some point in the movie. And the entire buildup of that scene is just waiting for like, okay, who's going to get fucking chomped by the giant ancient goddess mouth? I love that it's George. Yeah, Michael's just kind of unceremoniously killed by getting shot in the face. But George being the one fed, I thought it was the right choice as far as the brothers go. Ironically, Michael getting shot in the eye through the entire movie were shown that he has some kind of visual hypnotism powers that he uses on people so literally like taking away his only weapon as a means to kill him was pretty clever well yeah and it's a good twist when george gets fed to shitar right because the whole deal with connie right the innocent child in this movie mm-hmm. that's about to be fed to shitar is that she's a virgin right mm-hmm. because we gotta feed a virgin to shitar yeah, yeah pure virgin yeah you can only have that 
And it yeah. being George, because like George, all the seduction scenes, who is still a virgin, he he doesn't know how to deal with women. He doesn't even yeah. seem interested in women. Mm-mm. He is almost confirmed a virgin. No, he definitely is. Yeah, right, because he, he they definitely are both brings of them. back. Sheetar. You look at the scene when Michael and Georgie bring women back to the diner. Michael's making out with this woman. He knows what to do, and then they cut to Georgie and the other woman, and they're just watching. Yeah, and then <laughs> yeah, and Georgie is just fascinated by what's right. going on in front. And then, of the backs shot as another like laugh out loud moment when it cuts to her like kind of riding him and their clothes are still on yeah she's like oh you're so big and so great and he's like staring there dead face off to the side disassociated yes <laughs> dude that stare he had on his face i died laughing and and you're right like neither one of them appears to be that interested in sex but in different ways michael is just using his charm in that bundy-esque sex isn't the goal for me the goal is to murder this person and get the body which is the same for georgie but georgie legitimately like is uncomfortable with it mm-hmm. isn't interested in it and is just uncomfortable when he is put in that position well if we want to go back to queering the villains in this story is this sort of queer horror you know that could be some like asexual representation in there too there is some crazy you know tyler has been pointing out what is going on with genitals in this movie like, there is kind of a lot here that you've got to scratch you know and a lot of people dismiss this movie as random or incomprehensible or just schlocky for schlock's sake which one of those things is true but no this movie has a lot going on underneath all of this shit yeah like the the battered girlfriend <laughs> i mean like since we're there at that scene that was the moment where i'm just reality just kind of snaps a little bit and i don't know why that's the one that got me like that, that kind of pulled me back a little bit was when she she gets her head battered in, in dough mm-hmm. uh and then gets Donut-ed, the fire yeah. and then she turns into a donut hole <laughs> uh, but like yeah you know, we're at the peak in this peak in valleys like right. you know it's just how far can we push it ladies be talking so you turn them into a hush puppy yeah <laughs> you know? still with earrings on too that was yeah, yeah, that was so hilarious. Exactly. Yeah. We were talking about some of like, where did she find some of these actors or actresses? And it turns out they aren't necessarily. That's what they were not. But I want to know where she found Sheba Jackson. And I want to know. It had to have been Jackie Kong, like being like, okay, you're doing a shit job hiding your accent. Continue with that. Do that. Like through the entire movie. I can answer that if you want me to. Yeah, go for it. I'm insanely curious. So Sheba Jackson, what's her name? Lynette LaFrance is her name. (laughs) Excellent. So is there anybody she bears a resemblance to? Would either of you say? This is not a gotcha. I just want to know if she looks like anyone famous to you. Because she did to me. I would say she looks a little bit like she could be maybe not one of the Jackson siblings, but like a Jackson cousin. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So Jackie Kong cast her because she thought she looked like Janet Jackson. Okay. It came out that Lynette LaFrance was actually Janet Jackson's hairdresser. What? So she intentionally made made her look like Janet Jackson and the police chief had a weird accent. All these people spoke in weird ways. So Jackie Kong said, yeah, do a British accent. (laughs) She wanted her voice to stand out against all the other people. So she cast this woman because she looked like Janet Jackson and made her speak in the worst British accent that's ever been put on film. Oh, it's it's so bad that I thought she was actually Australian and Jackie Kong said, try and hide your Australian accent with an American <laughs> accent, but like it's bad on purpose, so I'm going to let you keep doing it. Frankly, this is starting to form in a definite pattern in relation to an old case. We think it's a work of a cult. Cult! Sheba and I. Put that thing at me, fool. We've been doing some research on the cults of Lumeria. 
Kotzulu, Miriam! Jesus fucking Christ, what am I paying you two for? Whatever happened to that biker group, the cannibals? I don't think so. A patrol car just phoned in a hit and run, involving one of the cannibal gang. He wasn't the one who ran. As messed up as he was, they said he died of a heart attack. I didn't realize that that was what was going on. I'm fine with a bad accent as long as you can carry it through the entire movie. Mm-hmm. But, like, she doesn't carry it at all. Yeah. Like, sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. Right. Sometimes it goes away midway through the sentence. Oh, but like, I was captivated by it. Yeah, it's great. It's fascinating. Yeah, yeah enraptured. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, like, well, ultimately, the detectives aren't important. Yeah, right? not at all. They're not the narrative heart no. of the story. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh-uh. It is the goddess Cheetar. <laughs> I did laugh at the end, too. Like, when the detectives come in and the people are kind of, you know, going green face and becoming zombies. The police have no no attempts to like try and help people Save or try anybody. to rescue no. survivors. No, they're just like, we've got to kill everyone. <laughs> Goodbye. Well, then even after like all the shit goes down and like the police are cleaning up the nightclub and there's just fucking bodies everywhere and stuff, the chief just like, excellent job to you two. <laughs> like even though fucking <laughs> dozens of people are dead. Everybody's dead. Yeah. And, like, <laughs> the only thing, like he actively tried to stop them from solving the crime. He's like, right. it's, it's not a cult, you guys. Stop yeah. it. Stop it. It's not a cult. And like as he's high-fiving everybody, she just walks on by. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah and walks on by in like a red tight dress and heels you would absolutely stand out in this crowd full of dead people at a club <laughs> yes right. like giant yeah. seven foot tall with frizzy hair spoiler alert this is what cops actually do <laughs> yeah. they don't solve crime yeah, there's one lone survivor and the chief does execute her <laughs> right yeah yeah it's just like shoots uh, him yep Really great. Really great portrayal of cops. Just wonderful. But yeah, despite the extreme camp, this film was threatened with an X rating. Shocking, and, right? Uh, beyond like the violence and nudity, like we mentioned earlier, the MPA took issue with the brothers being kind of these handsome, likable characters. Mm-hmm. That's so and funny to me. The like Ronnie and Nancy Reagan masks massacre, right? Of the like nude orbics was specifically a sticking point for the MPAA. Wow. And I love that at the end of the day, Jackie Kong said, cool, fuck it, we're just going to go out unrated. Which, you know, in the 80s, we bring this up a lot with horror movies. You kind of live or die by your rating. And that's still kind of true to a degree, but not really now that we're in this age of streaming where, like, you could just release it to streaming, period. And the rating doesn't make that much of a difference anymore. Back then, when everything was theatrical, if you did not secure an R rating, your movie was pretty much guaranteed to, like, not be fucking seen by anybody because exhibitors would just not book your movie. You know, mm-hmm. so if you had an X rating, which there was no NC-7 at this time, but NC-17 kind of took the place of X. Obviously, X is more like associated with pornography, right? So it was kind of a death kiss to the film. So the fact that she chose to say, no, like I'm sticking to my guns, I'm not cutting anything of all the ridiculous shit in the movie. Like, where do you start to cut anything, right? She literally said, if I started cutting, there would be maybe five minutes of this movie left and that's it. You know, as a result, it meant that this movie got a very limited theatrical release in summer of 87 and then immediately got a VHS release that year. But I at least appreciate the fact that she stuck to her guns and said, like, no, we're keeping this fucking movie the way we intended and we're not cutting anything. You know, like you just wouldn't have we wouldn't be talking about this movie now if they had made those cuts. 
and had toned down the script and toned down everything about this movie. So that's one of the biggest things I appreciate about this is that she just stuck with, you know, what her gut was telling her and just said, fuck it and put it out. And that the studio actually backed her on it. That's what I was also like really impressed by was that uh, Vestron at the time was totally had her back yeah i think i think great horror lives or dies based on the person at the head of everything because sam raimi did the same thing with evil dead he didn't let them rate it he just put it out how he wanted it and there's been books written on evil dead there's shit to talk about there there's a lot of shit to talk about here i think when you have a strong enough vision and you're confident in your vision and you're confident in what you've created yeah i think sticking to your guns is the right move because exactly we wouldn't be talking about this if this was all cut or change because it would just be watered down nonsense well like what is there to lose Absolutely. You know, th- this isn't like it wasn't a big budget movie Mm-mm. Right. It wasn't like starring. That's true. You know, it wasn't starring a Brando. Yeah. No one's reputation was on the line necessarily. Mm -hmm. Right. right? So like you have that freedom, right? Like you have the freedom of like not having like, you know, to answer to a producer who definitely wants his money back. Well, it's like Aaron said, she was in the punk rock sort of DIY scene. This is a very punk rock DIY way to go about it, to make the thing you want to make and not worry about anything with the label. Yeah. Cecil B. Demented. We're we're doing it. (laughs) Yeah. I was reading, too, like with the punk rock energy that's in this movie. The only two names that even have a Wikipedia article to them, as far as the cast goes, are the brothers, Rick Burks and Carl Crew. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was reading Rick Burks, who unfortunately passed away at a really early age. Yeah, just two years after this movie. Yeah, out, which is wild. And he, he was a local musician, too. Like, I think he was a punk rock musician, mm-hmm. and he died when the drummer of his band, they were in a car together, and the drummer was driving drunk and crashed. It wasn't the drummer, it was the producer of this movie who secured the movie rights. It was oh, Jimmy Maslin. fuck. I thought it was the drummer. Wow, okay. The drummer was in the car with them. Gotcha. Jimmy Maslin was just as involved in the music scene as he was in the film scene. And uh, that's where some of like the musicians and people from this movie kind of came from was he got them in there. But yeah, apparently Jimmy Maslin was fucking loaded and they got in a car accident that killed Rick Burks and mm-hmm. injured the other passengers passengers and jimmy maslin just fucking got out of the car and fled the scene wow so people at the time were like super pissed about that whole situation and apparently jimmy maslin didn't really get in a whole lot of trouble from what i read so people were like extra pissed about it but that's why rick burks didn't necessarily show up in anything past this point he, he had like a small part in jackie kong's next movie but i could definitely see like him going on to being in a lot more stuff even though acting was not necessarily like the thing that he originally pursued it was music originally but i mean i think he's good in this movie like both of the brothers are a lot of fun in this oh absolutely i completely agree i can see them both going on to other things yeah and we've joked about bad acting in this movie and this is not oscar winning acting obviously but it's all very fun when we say bad i don't mean like oh this is embarrassing i mean oh this is camp they're like having a good time and being ridiculous i don't i don't want to denigrate what the actors are bringing to this movie at all and again the thesis of our episode is all this was intentional mm-hmm. yeah. all, even the incompetence was intentional and tongue in cheek I was seeing too that Carl Krug staying with this idea of like this surreal 
punk rock energy. Like he was actually the co-proprietor to like a place called the California Institute of the Abnormal Arts, which was a club uh, that just closed down in July 2022. But it was basically an underground club in in North California or North Hollywood. Sorry, that did like performance art and like burlesque and freak shows and stuff like that. That seems very on board for someone who was involved with Blood Diner to do. I thought you were going to say he stayed on brand with this movie and starred as Jeffrey Dahmer in The Secret Life colon jeffrey dahmer which he did oh well yeah he was also on that yeah (laughs) (laughs) hell yeah cool well uh anybody have any like last final thoughts on blood diner as we wrap up i'm gonna give one acting award this is the person who should should have been more famous Uncle Anwar was amazing. <laughs> the way he did his voice, the way mm-hmm. when he showed up on the screen, he mm-hmm. felt like a real pro. There's just nobody like that Plus guy. that picture of him they put by the brain jar where he is menacing and has a yeah. cigarette hanging off. Yeah. His yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, I love towards the end of the movie when like the brain in the jar, things start to take a little bit of a turn and the brain in the jar like gets sad looking and like the brain stem sort of turns into a frowny face. <laughs> the tech it's is amazing. The best thing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so good. Really good. High class brain tech, so high good. class dummy tech. <laughs> it was yeah. This movie is hilarious. It's hard for me to classify this as a straight horror movie because it's not scary, I would say at all. It's shocking. It's shocking. Yeah, I think the horror that it inspires is internal if anything because you look at it and you think, "Oh my god, is that really happening on screen?" Because even in now, 2020X, <laughs> the year we record this, I'm trying to make this timeless. Nice. Uh <laughs> like I watched some of it was like, "Oh my god, some of this is happening on screen, like the puking scene, the nude aerobics is still watching Ronald Reagan run in and gun down women, something I think he dreamed he could do, but never could. <laughs> and then immediately cut up their nude bodies like yeah. into pieces and it's all shown on screen. Yeah, yeah, it's just it's wild that this is still edgier than some of the horror that's made today. Like I liked yeah. Malignant just fine, but I think Blood I, I Diner loved, I loved Malignant. Blood no. Diner is more edgy than Malignant because I think two thirds of Malignant is a boring mess. <laughs> and I don't know why I'm taking shots at Malignant. Yeah, I love Blood Diner. That's yeah. it. Oh, <laughs> I think at least the wigs in Blood Diner, Malignant is the spiritual successor of the yes. wigs in Blood Diner. Similar energy in wig form, yes. Here, here's another kind of wild swing I'll take with this movie. There were parts of this movie specifically with Uncle Anwar and the way he like was speaking and like his bombastic nature. And then even parts of the club scene with Sheetar resurrected in, in the background, like shooting magic bolts at people's heads and causing them to explode. And granted, this movie is way more like adult gory nudity but there was a little bit of big trouble in little Chinatown energy yep. to some uh-huh. of this movie for me. Yep. And uh, I, I don't know. I just, I thought that was interesting too, but like, yeah, I've talked this movie to death again. Everything seemed intentional. This movie is way more clever than you think. I know it has reached cult status, but I think it's still underappreciated and it deserves to be rediscovered. Yeah. I think what would help would be if this movie would show up on streaming. Cause as of right now, it's not, it was on Hulu for a long time last year. It was on Hulu most of all year. Yeah. Oh, okay. It was on Shudder for a while, too. And all of a sudden now, of course, as we're putting this episode out, it has disappeared from streaming. (laughs) But yeah, this was the second release that Lionsgate did when they re-released the whole Vestron video brand for their new Blu-ray sub-label in 2016. So you can still buy a copy of this. 
I just hope that it shows back up on streaming. Because I think at this point, like for horror especially, that's the way that new people are going to be exposed mm-hmm. to the stuff is if it is just a click away on your TV and it's easily accessible. But I, th- I think this is a great one that more people should check out for sure. Definitely wish that people would reach out to Jackie Kong and get her involved with some stuff. Now, there's so much horror that's being made at this point. I would love to see her get back into things and see what she would kind of bring 30 years later to the horror scene her energy seems perfect to like come in and direct a few episodes of like american horror story Mm -hmm. oh yeah something that's really goofy and campy and has weird queer energy as well that seems like a perfect fit yellow jackets get her on an episode of yellow jackets cool well uh yeah that wraps up this episode on blood diner nate Tyler, y'all are doing the Bruce Campbell podcast right mm-hmm. now. What else do y'all have that you want to plug? And uh, where can we find you guys? Well, yeah, primarily we're, we're all all in on Bruce Campbell. Uh, Way in on Bruce Campbell. So go ahead and uh, follow us on Twitter uh, at Bruce C. Pod. Bruce C. Pod. Yeah. And you can follow me, Tyler. I'm the good looking one, the smart one, the talented one. Uh, you can follow me at <laughs> Bear Nurse on Twitter. I'm like way better than Nate in every way. Yeah. I'm oh, <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't even tell his at anymore because he knows how bad he is all that, the time that's right no 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 no. nate and i did a podcast like we talked about earlier anamorphin time you can follow that on twitter it's on all the platforms it's all complete you can hear me reveal shitloads of childhood trauma we talk in depth about young adult themes politics themes of today all kinds of shit nate is an incredible podcast editor i'm lucky that i get to work with him and he did some amazing work on anamorphin time and that's continuing in the bruce campbell podcast so definitely follow nate i was lying i'm just jealous i wish he'd marry me <laughs> i didn't say anything now i get to like make you squirm and stuff it's cool i'm not squirming i'm having a great time <laughs> no you can follow nate at bait on twitter and follow uh, us, say hi we'll talk to you like i talked to everybody that tweets at me it's a problem yeah it's it's a big problem that's how i wrote you <laughs> into being on this podcast (laughs) we're easily bullied by confident women so if if you're confident or a woman or a confident woman just tell us what to do and we'll do it (laughs) well thank you for having us this was a lot of fun yeah yeah no thank y'all for coming on this was a blast yeah watch if you dare listeners these two gentlemen and probably heather as well although i don't know if she's nice uh (laughs) is gonna come on our bruce campbell podcast it's called the bruce campbell podcast it's not that hard so look out for uh that on the horizon hell yeah and if, if you guys ever want to come back we would love to have you back this was a blast absolutely oh i'd love to talk to y'all about the sadness if you've never seen it we haven't covered that yet and it's <laughs> not yeah yeah that might be a little bit too new we typically don't do stuff until it's like at least two or three years old just to give it enough time to like soak in the Fair culture enough. But uh, the fact that y'all picked blood diner <laughs> that immediately won me over when heather was like they want to cover something called blood diner and i was like what (laughs) like i've never had a person irl ever in my life be like cool let's talk blood diner nobody knows about um nobody it's an incredible movie yeah yes i was very intrigued from that point on so yes absolutely anytime that you guys want to come back we got our horror bona fides we're ready ready hell yeah cool well derek uh you want to wrap us up yeah we are watch of dare horror movie podcast hosted by me the coward craven and movie monster boy aaron um you can find us at our socials at watch of dare on facebook and twitter forever long that lasts catch us at all your favorite pod catchers apple stitcher pod chaser etc etc please continue to follow and review us especially on apple pod chaser good pods that's kind of where we've actually been ranking which is fucking amazing thank you for that 
shout out to your little brother, Jesse Mansfield, aka Party Gator, who does the bumps at the beginning end of each episode. Uh, you can follow him at Bandcamp at Party Gator. He's also part of Possums and Big Clown, a bunch of other music projects. He's kind of all over the place there, and it's all good. Speaking of music, you can check out our Spotify music playlist that's inspired by horror in general, be it movies or just kind of spooky tunes in general. And that is always pinned at the top of our Facebook and Twitter. And I think that's about it. Do you have anything else, Aaron? Sally, your body looks so good. What a set of knockers. If only I had my schlong, you would know the meaning of the word machismo. <laughs> I love All it. Right. <laughs> awesome. Oh. <laughs> <laughs>